Our Bible reading this morning is taken from Matthew 5, and you can turn there now, Matthew 5, uh, from verse 31, and Tuzama is going to be reading for us in just a moment. Uh, you can also put a finger in Matthew 19, so we're going to spend some time in Matthew 19. Um, start with Matthew 5, put a finger in Matthew 19. Thank you, Tuzama. Good morning, church. My name is Tuzama, and I'll be reading Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say this to you, and everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whosoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of God. Why don't you just join me in a word of prayer before we come to God's word. Father, we praise you that you speak with perfect power and that you always speak the truth in love perfectly. And as always, Lord, we come to you needing to hear you speak. We praise you and thank you that supremely you speak to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the fullest of your communication with us, that he is your fullest self-disclosure to us. And so help us to see him, help us to hear him, help us to receive him into our hearts by the power of your spirit and through your word. Father, we pray that we would not leave here as we arrived, that we pray that you would meet with us, that you would comfort us where we need comforting. Father, this is a difficult and sensitive topic. We need you every week, every moment, but particularly now, Lord. Won't you be with us? Won't you guide us and lead us into the truth? And won't you comfort us with your grace? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a little bit of feedback here, guys, uh, if you can help me. Thanks. Let me start with this quote. I confess to a basic reluctance to attempt an exposition of these verses. This is partly because divorce is a controversial and complex subject, but even more because it is a subject which touches people's emotions at a deep level. There is almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage, and almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. Although I believe that God's way in most cases is not divorce, I hope I shall write with sensitivity, for I know the pain that many suffer, and I have no wish to add to their distress. Those are the words of John Stott, that great giant of the faith. If that's how he feels... You can imagine how I feel approaching this text. This is also a deeply personal topic for me. I have seen divorce up close and personal. I've tasted its bitter fruit. My parents were divorced. My father remarried and was divorced again. My mother married a man who has twice been divorced. My wife's parents are divorced. They married partners who themselves had been divorced. Divorce is not a theoretical topic for me. 
And I know that that's true of many of you here this morning. I have seen it unfold. I know how painful and how complex it is. I'm not here to judge anyone. That said, in the end, we have to say, we have to say what John Stott says. It is because I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this and every subject is good, intrinsically good, good for individuals, good for society, that I take my courage and write on. It is because I believe that the teaching of Jesus is always good that I take my courage and preach on. In the Christian life, truth and love always hold together. In fact, you can't have one without the other. So whatever we may think at first, it is never ever loving to water down the truth. What is the truth when it comes to divorce? What is Jesus actually teaching us here? What we have in the few verses that Tozama read for us is just a summary version. We can be thankful to God that we have a much fuller version in a little later on in Matthew 19. So I asked you to keep a finger there. Let's go there now. Matthew 19, this is where we're going to spend most of our morning. Matthew 19, verse 1. Uh, read along with me. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? <clears throat> he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. What is Jesus saying? Before we get there, we, we need some context. In the ancient Greco-Roman world in which he lived, married women had no rights. This was long before birth control, long before the suffragette movement, long before any notion of a dual-income household. And so married women, well, women in general, depended on marriage for a livelihood. Women were at the mercy of their husbands. And only husbands had the right of divorce. They could exercise that right at a whim. No formality required whatsoever. The equivalent, all it required was the equivalent of a WhatsApp message. We actually have a historical record of women being divorced as many as 10 times. That's how easy it was. That's the ancient Greco-Roman world, the wider context. But Israel, as a people formed and shaped by God's word, living within that wider context, but formed and shaped by God's word, 
they had substantially better protections for women. One key place we find those protections is in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. It reads as follows. Let me read it for you. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, the passage goes on to say that if she remarries and then gets divorced, the original husband may not remarry her. Now, it's a little bit obscure, but the reason seems to be to protect this woman by discouraging her original husband from making a hasty decision. If he divorces her and she remarries, he cannot then reclaim her as his own wife. He will be committing adultery. The interpretation of that verse was a massive controversy in Jesus' day. The controversy centered on the grounds for divorce. The whole fight turned on a single phrase, the phrase, something indecent. A man divorces his wife because he finds something indecent in her. Literally, he finds a cause of nakedness. A cause of nakedness. Now, what does that mean? Well, there was a conservative school under the leadership of Rabbi Shammai, and they argued that a cause of nakedness must mean adultery. Therefore, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, the only grounds for divorce is adultery. On the other side of the argument, you had the liberal school, and they were the followers of Rabbi Hillel. What they did was they split this contested phrase, a cause of nakedness, they split it into two parts. A cause and nakedness. So the grounds for divorce in Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 was either nakedness or a cause. In other words, the grounds for divorce was either adultery or any other cause. Do you see the sleight of hand? When they fleshed it out, what they meant by any other cause, they pinned it down to things like burning the supper, or too many wrinkles. A man can divorce his wife for burning the supper, or because she has too many wrinkles. Now, if the shoe were on the other foot, I guess that if a woman can therefore divorce her husband when he grows his umkaba, <laughs> or if he leaves the toilet seat up. But just imagine... The interpretation of the Hillel school was for any cause divorce, including wrinkles or burnt supper. That's against the Shammai school, who were arguing that the only grounds for divorce is sexual immorality, adultery. Now, I'm sure you can guess which interpretation was more popular with the people, especially the men, and especially including the Pharisees of Jesus' day. It only took one generation. One generation after Jesus, 70 AD, Jews had fully embraced any cause divorce. There was no controversy anymore. It was any cause divorce. Any cause divorce was the only grounds for divorce because, of course, it included any grounds for divorce. 
Do you see now what the Pharisees who approached Jesus were doing? Do you see the trap that they were setting for him? Look at verse 3. Pharisees came up to him and tested him. See, they're laying a trap. Tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife, and notice the key phrase, for any cause? The Pharisees know that Jesus has a reputation for the most radical interpretations of the law. But if Jesus sides with Rabbi Shammai and his conservative school of thinking, he risks making himself very unpopular. And on their interpretation, he risks putting, putting himself at odds with Moses. So what do they do? They tip him right into the middle of the controversy and say, there you go, you sort this out for us. What does Jesus say? What does he do? He focuses on three things. The rule, not the exception. The spirit of the law before the letter of the law. And the way forward, not the way out. Those three things. The rule, not the exception. The spirit before the letter. And the way forward, not the way out. So let's have a look. The rule, not the exception. He responds to their question about divorce by talking about marriage. They ask about the grounds for divorce. He takes them back to God's good purposes in creation. God made humanity a plurality in male and female. A race of just males is subhuman. A race of just females is subhuman. God made humanity Male and female. To be human is to be male and female. And then God bound them together, this plurality, in an exclusive, lifelong union of covenant love. So that, if we read a little further in the Genesis story, mankind can flourish and mankind can help the rest of creation to flourish. God has this big, bold, beautiful, ambitious plan for humanity. So big that it takes an exclusive, lifelong union of covenant love to make any real progress. This is what Jesus is saying. That whole, enormous, big, bold, beautiful plan, that original divine purpose, trumps a man's capricious desire to trade his wife for a better model. In short, Jesus is saying, God's plan is better than yours. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus focuses on the rule, not the exception. He focuses on marriage, not divorce. Another way to say it is that he focuses on the spirit of the law before the letter. We've already seen in our series through the Sermon on the Mount, we've already seen that the Pharisees are thinking and acting like lawyers. And if I was to be specific, I would say that they are thinking and acting like tax lawyers. In other words, they are striving for the minimum standard of compliance. How can I squeeze the last ounce out of God's law for my own advantage and still remain law-abiding? That's the key question. Where are the loopholes? Where are the corners I can cut? Where are the angles? How can we spin this thing? 
If you are splitting two words in a single phrase so that you can upgrade your wrinkly wife and your burnt toast for a 20-year-old Michelin chef, you are no longer thinking like a child of God. You are thinking like a tax lawyer. You are concerned with the letter of the law. You've completely lost sight with the spirit of your father's will for your life. Do you see the difference? And because they ignored the spirit of the law, they also distorted the letter of the law because the two things always hold together in God's economy. When Jesus points them to God's perfect purpose in marriage, they reply, why then did Moses command the husband to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? The thing is, Moses never did that. These experts in the law didn't even know the law. And Jesus is quick to correct them in verse 8. It was not a command. It was a concession. It was a provision in the law designed to deal with life after the fall in this broken world. It was there to protect women from capricious divorce. It was there to protect men and women from falling into adultery through illegitimate remarriage. It was there because of hardness of heart. But I want you to notice, and perhaps you did notice, whose hearts are hard. Because it's very interesting. Look at verse 8. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. You see what he's doing? Jesus is identifying the Pharisees with the men of Moses' day who lived generations and generations before them. What is the thing that unites these two generations, these two groups? Hardness of heart. It was hardness of heart that made the men of Moses' day want to divorce their wives for any and every cause. Jesus saw that same hardness of heart in the Pharisees who are falling over themselves to twist the letter of the law in favor of any cause divorce. Now, in Matthew's gospel and in the scriptures more broadly, hardness of heart is a state of willful alienation from God. It means you choose to ignore the Holy Spirit's instruction. You choose to ignore it. You choose to ignore the fact that the intent of God's law is always love. God's law is the servant of God's love. Every word from God is motivated by love and serves the purpose of love. Hardness of heart refuses to see that. And bends the law in on itself for the sake of self. For the sake of taking rather than giving. Jesus has explained how God loved humanity, loved humanity, by giving us the institution of marriage, by pouring out blessing upon blessing and giving us the institution of marriage. And even the concession for divorce is there to protect his people from inflicting more damage upon themselves by compounding their sin through remarriage and adultery. The intent, the spirit of the law, is always love. Before Jesus will talk about divorce, he focuses on the rule 
not the exception. He focuses on the spirit before he comes to the letter and he holds the two together. Only then does he come to the topic at hand, which he deals with clearly. Verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Here we have arrived at this difficult subject of the grounds for divorce, which Jesus deals with head on. He doesn't shirk. He doesn't deflect. He deals with head on. The critical question for us here this morning is this. Is Jesus limiting himself to the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 verse 1, or is he making sweeping statements about divorce in general? Because there are actually a few other Old Testament passages that seem to offer grounds for divorce other than adultery. But even if we limit Jesus' comments to Deuteronomy 24 and we include those passages, the broadest possible grounds for divorce would still only be adultery and serious cases of neglect or abuse. Now, I'm inclined to say that Jesus was addressing the controversy of his day specifically, and therefore what we read in Matthew 19 is his interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, not a broad and all-inclusive statement on divorce in general. And so I am inclined to go with the broader grounds for divorce, but I have to tell you that I take that position with fear and trembling. I take it tentatively, because I know that residues of the same hardness of heart that lived in the Pharisees live in me. And the Pharisee in me wants to manage God's claim over our lives, to curate it, to domesticate it, to levels that I feel are appropriate. And we just cannot do that. We cannot. The point is this. Whether you accept the broader grounds for divorce or only adultery, the grounds for divorce that Jesus gives to us are significantly narrower than we tend to make them. Significantly narrower. You'll know that under South African law, grounds for divorce include incompatibility and growing apart. Now think about it with me. By that standard, most marriages have grounds for divorce several times a day. And from day one in marriage, you bump into the reality that you and your wife are not compatible in every area. Imagine that. Men who truly are from Mars tend to marry women who are from Venus. So by the standards of South African law, before we are even married, we have grounds for divorce. And the truly tragic reality, this is the great tragedy, is that we in the church feel entitled to that same standard. We want to embrace that low bar. We know different from that generation of Israelites that walked with Jesus. And so we try and bend God's word in the direction of any cause divorce, just like the Pharisees did. But we have to say it's clear. The grounds for divorce are not what we make them to be. On the broadest interpretation, the broadest interpretation, they're still very narrow. 
How are we going to live with that? Even the disciples who heard Jesus teach this for the first time responded with, if that's the case, it's better not to marry. How can we live with his teaching? Here is where his third and final focus helps us. So helpful for us. Jesus focuses on the way forward, not the way out. The way forward and not the way out. Our Lord gives us everything we need for life and godliness. He gives us everything we need for life in the kingdom. He gives us everything we need for marriage. And to help us overcome our hardness of heart. He gives us everything. There is no shortage in what the Lord Jesus has given us. To see this clearly, we need to go to 1 Corinthians 7. So in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is answering questions that the Corinthians have asked him directly on marriage and divorce. So just listen. If you go to one, you can either just listen or if you turn there, look at uh, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10. I'll read it for us. To the married I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. First thing to notice, Paul's teaching is from the Lord. He's quoting the Lord Jesus at this point. And his teaching is clear. In a culture like the Corinthian culture, like our culture, a culture of any, any cause divorce, Christians must be different. And remember, that's the whole thrust of the Sermon on the Mount. Christians are different. You are different, so be different. Christians must be different. Now, how can we be? Where are we going to get the resources to be different? In this area, in this most painful and complex of all areas. The key word for us is in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 7. They must be reconciled. Reconciled. Now what does that mean? Does it mean they must just try harder? Paul's not naive. He knows that it's going to take more than effort. It's not going to take less than effort. But it certainly is going to take more. The word he uses is very deliberate. It's an important word for him. It's a load-bearing word for the Apostle Paul. He uses that same word in his second letter to the Corinthian church. Now, just, let me just read to you from his second letter. Listen for our word. Here we go. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him... We might become the righteousness of God. Instead of a way out, we have a way forward. God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us. That's what reconciliation cost the Father. That's priceless. Those are the bottomless, inexhaustible resources we have when we want to reconcile with our spouse, when we want to reconcile with each other. And when we do reconcile with our spouse, Paul says elsewhere in his letter to the Ephesian church that our marriages become a picture of the gospel, a beautiful picture of the gospel for all the world to see. Now, you might be thinking, you'd never say this out loud, you're too polite, but you might well be thinking, preacher, that's all very well and good, thank you for that, but glib answers about Jesus are not going to help me. You have no idea how hard it is. And I say this with the greatest love and respect, my brother, my sister. It is you who are being glib about Jesus and his sacrifice. You are not fully appreciating the weight of it and the power of it, the resources we have at our disposal when we come to reconciliation. You see, the one thing we cannot do is say that God doesn't understand The whole story of the Bible is the story of a God presented as a faithful husband pursuing, pursuing, relentlessly pursuing his unfaithful wife. Desperately trying to be reconciled with her even though he's done nothing wrong. He is the only true victim. In the end, he has to die to win her back. You see, every time you struggle to forgive in marriage, you mustn't focus on your sacrifice. You must focus on God's sacrifice. And then you will be reminded that whatever it is you are giving up has already been paid for in full. And you'll also be reminded that he didn't just die for your spouse. He became sin for you. Your sin put him there. Focusing on his reconciling sacrifice will give you the resources you need to go through with your sacrifice. And forgiveness is a sacrifice. Let's not beat around the bush. Forgiveness is a sacrifice. It's always a sacrifice. You are sacrificing your right to reparations to reciprocity. Instead of demanding what you are owed, you are paying the price for the sin against you. You are absorbing the cost. How can you? Jesus is always enough. Always. If we can't see that, It's because we are not seeing him as he truly is. When we come to Jesus and we ask him about divorce, what does he do? Well, firstly, he focuses on marriage, not on divorce. He tells us, he reminds us about the 
beauty of God's big plan for humanity and how it can only flourish in the context of exclusive lifelong covenant love that points beyond itself to the exclusive lifelong covenant relationship that God has with his people. He focuses on the rule, not the exception. The second thing he does is that he shows us that God's covenant love for us is why he gave us marriage in the first place. It's that picture of God's covenant love for his people. He focuses on the spirit of the law before he gets to the letter of the law and the two always hold together. Finally, he shows us how God reconciles us to himself through the blood of his son. And how that gives us the power we need, the endless, bottomless, inexhaustible resources we need to be reconciled with each other. He focuses on the way forward, not the way out. He gives us what we need to keep going. To keep moving forward with his plan. But, he also gives us what we need when we fail, when we don't move forward. It is the grace of God that motivates us to keep moving forward in marriage. It's the same grace of God that embraces us when our marriages fail. Jesus has done all that needs to be done to give life to our marriages. He has also done all that needs to be done to rescue us when our marriages die. Through our own sin. Jesus is Lord and Savior of those who are married. Jesus is Lord and Savior of those who have been divorced. You know, one of the best days in the life of our church was a day when Mary Lee Ritchie, who used to be on staff here, uh, stood up at this podium and she said, Good morning, everybody. My name is Mary Lee Ritchie and I have been divorced twice. It was a great day. It was a great day not because we celebrate divorce. Of course not. It was a great day because we celebrate grace. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. In some instances, it's not sin at all. So let's be clear on that. Remember, we've already said divorce is legitimate in cases of sexual immorality, serious neglect, serious abuse. Now, does saying that give us license for any cause divorce? The Apostle Paul is crystal clear on this. By no means, he says repeatedly in all of his letters, Grace is never a license to sin. It's the opposite. Grace changes who you are. In your DNA, it changes your most fundamental allegiances. You are no longer a slave to sin and to yourself, your own selfish desires. You are a servant of the king. Grace will always be available to keep moving us, to keep us going in marriage if we will only appropriate the resources that God is giving to us. If you are struggling to love your marriage partner, think hard. Think hard. Think often. Think prayerfully. Think stubbornly about God's stubborn love for you. Start there. And get the help of others. 
Do all of your thinking and praying and resolute determination to keep going. Do it all in the redeemed family. Don't try and do it on your own. The devil loves it when we isolate it. He loves to isolate us. Do it in the redeemed family. Get help. Make sure you're in a life group so you have people who can walk the journey with you. God's grace and God's love for you in the redeemed family will help you to persist with love and grace towards your partner. But if you have fallen and failed, and you have sinned in divorce, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is an all-sufficient atonement for all of our sin, including any sin related to divorce. What we are saying is this. God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ will help us to stand in our marriages. But if you have fallen, God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ will pick you up and put you on your feet again. We started with John Stott. Let's finish with John Stott. I believe God's way in most cases is not divorce. So speaking personally as a Christian pastor, whenever someone comes to me and wants to speak to me about divorce, I have now for some years steadfastly refused to do so. I have made the rule never to speak with anybody about divorce until I have first spoken with him or her about two other subjects, namely marriage and reconciliation. The rule, not the exception. The way forward, not the way out. Sometimes a discussion on these topics makes a discussion of the other divorce unnecessary. At the very least, it is only when a person has understood and accepted God's view of marriage and God's call to reconciliation that a possible context has been created in, win- in which one may regretfully go on to talk about divorce. This principle of priorities is, I believe, consistent with the teaching of Jesus. And in the end, that's all that matters. Let's pray. Father, you are faithful and forgiving. But we are prone to be unfaithful and unforgiving. It's such a desperate and ungrateful combination in our hearts. Help us, Father. Help us to hear, to touch, to taste, to see the sweetness of what our Lord Jesus is calling us to. Help us to see the beauty of your purposes in marriage. Help us to be moved by your profound love in reconciling us to yourself. Help us to respond by letting your grace flow through us and on to our marriage partners. Keep us in lifelong, exclusive, covenant love with you and with each other. 
And Father, for those of us who have been divorced, help us to know and trust the fullness and freedom of your forgiveness for us in Christ Jesus and never to doubt it. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.